Episode 20, Artist Sandy Rodriguez. My name is Michael Delgado and I'm your host. I come to you each week from the fantastic library bar in the spectacular Mayfair Hotel right here in downtown LA. Tonight, I'm meeting artist Sandy Rodriguez. I spy her across the beautiful Art Deco lobby. She wears a fitted dress with flattering geometric patterns. Not that she needs flattering. Tucked carefully into the corner of the bar, Rodriguez is getting special attention from the bartender. I feel like I'm breaking something up as I introduce myself, but it's time to meet. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed. You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any. Oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. 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 Tonight I'm talking with artist and educator Sandy Rodriguez. Sandy is a fantastic artist and independent educator. She investigates the methods and materials of painting across cultures and histories. Her most recent work includes the Codex Rodriguez Mondragon, a series of maps and paintings about the intersection of politics, history, and cultura. In just the last three years, Rodriguez has been the recipient of several prestigious awards, including the City of Los Angeles Master Artist Fellowship, American for the Arts Public Art Network Year in Review, Department of Cultural Affairs Cultural Trailblazer Award, and Artist in Residence for the Los Angeles County Arts Commission. Right now, Sandy's involved in one of the city's hottest shows at Barnstall Park. It's up through July 14th, and she's also doing a literary project at Beyond Baroque. It involves a reading this Thursday, June 6th. She's here to talk about those two shows, and I'm very excited to have her here. Please welcome Sandy Rodriguez. Tell me about all the things you're doing. You have a show up now. I do. And something coming up as well, but I'm... I do, I do. Okay, do it. Tell me what. So I currently have uh, work in an exhibition that's called Cola 19. Is it Cola like the tail? No, it's like City of L.A. Oh, but Cola, Cola as a tail is way more fun. <laughs> do you think? I looked at that and I was like, going, it is, oh, it is. it's super cool. Like, oh, Cola. Gola, as in the tale of 2019. There you go. Shoot. There's a really great selection of artists in that exhibition. Right, and that's why I thought, how silly of me. But, okay, so it's City of LA. All right, so tell me more. So I was awarded, along with an extraordinary group of artists, the um, Cola Award for 2018-2019. So... I had basically about six months of research and making, and then meetings with the curator, and what you see currently on now view. That, like it's a residency then? Um, it's a no. fellowship, so you ah. basically get a cash award ah, nice. to produce new work that engages to with... To pay off your loans? To make new work. <laughs> you should use part to pay off your loans. <laughs> But, you know, you can use them. No, I'm kidding. It's, okay, so. So they give you um, an award to produce new work to engage with a variety of audiences at the Municipal Art Gallery, uh-huh. which is one of the 
largest, most beautiful kinds of exhibition spaces that are operated by Department of Cultural Affairs. Mm-hmm. So I created a, an epic map of Los Angeles, which is almost 10 feet by 10 feet. Ah. And it's all done in edible and medicinal colors as well as mineral colors and earth-derived colors of the Americas. So what it's about is creating a history of Los Angeles for the Municipal Art Gallery and a larger Los Angeles audiences. No, I mean using the... Based on the methods and materials of the Americas that are sourced from the colonial to the present period. So which are the materials that are native to this region, to these communities, and to this history that I'm presenting, which is conquest to caging, Mm -hmm. the history of uh, incarcerating bodies in Los Angeles from the colonial to the present period. Right. So it's this giant epic double map that's based on a 1950s map. Now, did you get the this Cola Award thing based on this concept? Like you said, hey, I want to make this giant map. I have been doing this whole series for about two and a half years now. This whole series is called the Codex Rodriguez Mondragon. Mm-hmm. And it's a series... I did read that. I, I told her before we started talking that I normally do a lot more homework on someone, but she's so much fun, I figured I would just yak. So I did read about that. And what did you read? Well, not enough to know anything except that I, <laughs> except that you would mention it. <laughs> and no, but it sounded like it sounded pretty extensive from your, like what you were, you've been at it a while as well. It's, well, yeah, I mean, it's been uh, two years. This is the third year of this project. Right. That's and I imagined it as a, a five-year project, but... As I'm wrapping up year three, I'm not sure that it'll be done in two years mm-hmm. um, because there are all these different um, ideas and What's the ways in part? which. So, codex or codices are typically named for the place that they are housed, mm-hmm. not necessarily the place where they're made or the pe- named after the people who made them. Mm. So like you have like the Dresden Codex or the right. Florentine Codex, and they ended up there. But these are manuscripts of the Americas that were created in the colonial period. Hmm. But we don't have access to them. They're far away. So in creating my own kind of history of the region, I named it after my parents. So Rodriguez is my dad, Mondragon's my mom. Mondragon, that's right. And the Mondragon are three generations of Mexican and Chicano painters that have migrated from Chiapas and Jalisco to LA and back and forth for multiple generations. No. Interesting. And what kind of painters? Paint? Oil painters. Really? So my grandparents met in the teens, mm-hmm. uh, lived in the Italian Quarter, Bunker Hill. Right. And made a living as painters. Really? That's fabulous. Yeah. yeah. But moved several times, but you find their records like in the census and various kinds mm-hmm. of like moments in Los Angeles. But throughout Baja, Tijuana, Ensenada. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're, now you have an, uh, a border history as well, right? In terms of, like you grew up in El Centro, right? I no. was born in National City. Oh, National City. So National City and then all around San Diego into Tijuana and then up to L.A. in 1987. So, and then I came to join the family history of painting and stuff, did, were you, did you think that you were going to make art also, or did you know about their Well, I knew, um, 
about 16. About them or that you wanted to That I wanted to make art. Okay. But did you know that your, it was your father's side or mother's side? Mom's side. Mom's side, sorry, yeah. So was, were painters, did you know that? Oh yeah, I mean like going to grandma's house, it smelled like oil paint. Oh, all right, all right. You would go in the back studio, she'd be like, don't touch the good brushes, yeah. hands off. Well, she's huffing over the, the things. With the, the linseed and the Damar varnish, <laughs> and then it's like garlic chicken soup wafting in from the kitchen, you know? Right. There's always a big pot of beans on, I'm sure. You know, there was a lot of onion and garlic, is what really? I remember. Yeah. Well, it was, the, it was the beautiful mixture of the two. Right. Yeah, that sounds fabulous. And so, well, no wonder you want to paint or art painting now. Well, you know, I'll tell you, out of all of the siblings and all of the cousins and out of the whole group, I'm the only painter on my mom's side. Ah, really? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of cultural workers, but in terms of, I got to paint, let me paint. I'm well, a mess if like I can't pay. It skips a generation or something. Ah, it could so. be. Could be. So tell me more about this. When is this? Or is it up now? The so the exhibition's on view now. Okay. Until and this July. Is the 10 that we're seeing? This is a double map of Los Angeles. It's called Rainbows, Grizzlies, Snakes. Oh my! Wow. Conquest to Cajun in Los Angeles. Are there grizzlies in Los So some of the first accounts of uh, moments of contact mm-hmm. were letters going back to Spain saying, well, we couldn't find Queen Calafia dusted in gold, and yeah, yeah. we're not finding a bunch of loot. We're finding a lot of grizzlies and snakes right. and oak trees and people barely wearing any clothes. And they're like... That sounds very familiar. And I was like, oh, I want to go there. <laughs> Well, it sounds very contemporary. <laughs> you know, imagine a Los Angeles without palm trees. You know, with oaks everywhere and like grizzlies, right. like kind of snacking on acorns and just right. kind of like. Right. Yeah. That would be nice. I mean, a lot of my work has um, a combination of both, well, of three things: of the contemporary, political, the historic, from colonial to present but then also the history of kind of native edible medicinal plants of the region and trying to figure out what was actually here, what sustained people, how did people use it. Yeah, that is kind of crazy. I mean, the acorns, I mean, from the, or the oak tree things was like massive, right? That was the thing. Yeah, that's what you ate. You didn't have corn tortillas, you had acorn tortillas. Right. Yeah, and, and, they're, and it's a big process because the corns are acidic. Right, you got to leach it, it's them. It's not. It's not that big of a process. I mean, I did a. But I mean, how they figured it out? I mean, like. Cause well, like I mean, how do like you figure out anything? How, how do you figure out that you can eat a, a root like a potato? Like you dig in the, the hole. Grizzly eat it, and he doesn't <laughs> die. Serious, the deer eat that. You're like, they don't die. It's like, hmm, yeah, it might be good. You know, it's it's a very simple and straightforward um, method of leaching the acorns. Yeah, but the whole concept of like, well, somebody had to get sick before they figured out they had to leach them. Well, and then it's not um, too labor intensive. It's about collecting them, right. taking them out, and then letting water pass over them. Right. Yeah. So either you put it in a, a basket, 
by running water and that takes all the tannins out so that it's delicious uh -huh. and you can make it into okay, a good. lot of different what things. What else were they eating? It sounds good. I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, so in addition to the map, there's four plant folios, one for each um, season when you're supposed to harvest these things. So one is about acorns because I took like an intensive four-day acorn processing class. Oh. Which was amazing. Where would you do that? I did that in Northern California, but we learned about the 22 endemic acorn producing oaks in California. Really? And which ones are the tastiest. Really? But I, we learned I, how I to make... So yeah, well, like the live oak is not as good as the... Well, you know, so like there's preferred oaks and certainly the um, populations that have been preparing them and trading them with various different groups had a preferred one, but coastal live oak is, is a very delicious yeah, acorn. But, so there's one folio for the oak, there's one for the native walnut, there's one for the native cherry, and there's one for toyon. There's native cherries? Oh yeah. Don't, doesn't that have to be cold to have a cherry? Like cherry trees, don't they have to like... No, the whole um, Prunus uh, family has multiple cherries uh, that are available. There's an endemic cherry tree to Los Angeles? There's many. Really? Oh, yeah. See what I know. <laughs> See, this is half the fun of why I don't learn things about <laughs> the person I'm talking to because this is fascinating. Really? But, but each one of those um, plants that I've featured are trees and shrubs that have edible, medicinal, utilitarian uses. So whether or not I've actually made dye or paint from that part of a specific part of that plant, mm -hmm. it's got other uses which are extraordinary and not known to most people anymore. Right. Like we lost that history less so, than a couple hundred years ago. So in the composition of the painting, and you refer to it as a painting, right? Mm -hmm. And you're using these these elements as pigments. So, so I'm using the, the walnut ink is what uh, I paint okay. all of the composition and lines with. Okay. For this particular double map, I'm using a lot of mineral and earth pigments. Hmm. So these are materials that people have used since we painted in caves, right? Right. So and your you're oxides. making yourself. Yeah. And so I'm using a binder to... I can't to imagine going to, like, Blick and find it. Well, you can find some of the parts to go back to the studio to make it into paint. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, basically paints anything with a binder and a colored kind of material, pigment or organic colorant that you mix together and make mm -hmm. it stick to something, right? right? Like tempera, for example. Yeah, you could use glare, which is for tempera. You can use oil for oil painting. You can use mm -hmm. acrylic for acrylic for watercolor. You use gum arabic. Mm -hmm. If you're working in a traditional Western European tradition, but uh, Mexican painters in the colonial period used an orchid gum. Hmm which I've been trying and I've just got the recipe to finally like... Wow, where'd you find the recipe? From the conservator from LACMA. Oh, really? Had a conservation, just sent it to me and I was like, yes! Because wow. I've, I've been working with a, a medievalist who got multiple recipes and sent me them and I had the orchid bulbs airshipped from a nursery in 
Santa Barbara because the, these damn orchids grow at like 6,000 feet elevation in Oaxaca. Oh, I'm not going to make it to Oaxaca very quickly. Yeah, not back and <laughs> forth yeah, to get it. Yeah. But that's a story for another time. Hmm. Well, that's amazing. And so then you like put them in a mortar and pestle and just grind them out or what? Oh, so um, when you're talking about earth and mineral pigments, so malachite, azurite, I don't have the equipment to grind full minerals. Mm -hmm. So I'll buy them pre-prepared. Right. So I come back and then I actually use it. Where do you a, find that? Just so there's, like a little mineral store? Like No, there's um, historic mineral... Um, Rocks are us. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> there's folks that distribute them. Yeah? And luckily they're because in San Francisco. Why? What are they used for? Um, because there's a lot of folks that still paint in... Oh, really? They're used they're, for... It's, it's a painting. It's a historic paint material distributor. Oh, of course. I mean, like, there's Kremer pigments in New York, and there's yeah. Sinopia here in, like, California. And that's what the conservators work on. Right, and so, like, if you've got... Or forgers. Or forgers, this absolutely. Is, this is, this is exactly what you do. This is your real yeah, yeah, yeah. MO. <laughs> I'm starting to understand. Yeah, colonial this, colonial that. Forger! Well, well, I'll tell you, um, not only is using the, and processing the, the color from materials that are sourced in the U.S. and Mexico and the U.S. Southwest, um, really a different experience than working with store-bought paint. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. But yeah. every single source has a conceptual kind of reason as to why it's used in certain parts of a painting. So when you look at a text called um, Colors of the New World by Diana Magaloni, mm -hmm. she breaks down a colonial text that basically has a painting treatise, it's Mexican art history from the 16th century, that says we use a transparent red to refer to the solar realm. Mm -hmm. And that's coming from the cochinilla, that insect that eats the yeah. cactus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, When we use a mineral red, like an iron oxide, that's about the underworld because it's a mineral that comes out of a cave. Really? And so that's referencing the deities in the spiritual realm of the underworld versus the terrestrial realm. Right. So there's a conceptual reason for using mineral versus plant-based colors. I see. So when you get into that, it's... And this is, are you applying that same con uh, construct? So I'm using, the, I'm codifying the colorants from specific regions for an intention, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm playing with this notion right. of okay. where and so how to use certain colors. How important is it that I know that when I see the painting first time? It's not important for you to know the first time. But when you see the piece, you'll see it the first time. You may or may not be compelled to come back and look again. And then you may or may not be compelled to read the text. but. There's a number of entry points and a number of opportunities to go deeper with the work because it is so layered. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow, sounds great. And that is up now, yes? Mm -hmm. And where is that and where do we see it? So it's at the Municipal Art Gallery up at Barnsdale, which is Sunset and between Hollywood and Vermont. Yeah, it's in that little triangle. Yeah. It's up at Barnsdale and it'll be there through mid-July. Okay. Well, that's good. And then, yeah. 
Well, how long did that take to do all that? About six months. Oh, really? And so one of the things that I was also researching was these places and locations throughout L.A. where people have been caged. And so I was reading a text called City of Inmates by Kelly Lytle Hernandez. And it is the story of caging people in Los Angeles from the colonial period from missions all the way to how we ended up as the carceral capital of the world right. where we have more people incarcerated here than anywhere. Here in California? In Los Angeles. Really? So on the map key, I basically outlined the 10 adult prisons and the 10 prisons for juveniles. We have 20. 20 for juveniles? We have How 10 did I and 10 that? because it didn't boom till after you grew up. Uh, well, that's good. <laughs> sure, I'd be in there. So, I really honestly don't mean to make light of this. So, but it, the, so the, the history so of caging goes back to when we had the missions that basically wiped out 80% of the local population. Right. <clears throat> right. And then it, it kind of uh, develops from that period into the present with a major boom after the 1970s and going through the past few decades. But so I created a map key so you could see all of the locations across Los Angeles where people are detained and caged. And when you look at the map key, you see that a lot of the places aren't called jails or prisons. They're called like rehabilitation centers mm. and like work sites. Right. And the juvenile ones aren't called like juvenile halls. They're called like camps. Right, yeah. And they're called family centers. And when you look at the, what, the places where children are being detained in immigration detention centers, they're called like Christian family centers, <laughs> you oh, know? Man. So I, I went through and but a lot of the information that inspired this map is the work of a, a historian in that text, City of Inmates, but also the Florentine Codex and really thinking about Book 12, which is of the conquest. So just kind of playing with multiple I was histories. Say, so yeah, are you seeing a through line from colonialism and suppression to, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, it's systematic kind of violence against various communities that you see cyclically right and so we're just at the top of a cycle a couple months ago we all saw on our news feeds images of people being caged underneath the freeways in el paso right right so in 1954 under operation wetback we were caging people in elysian they park called it operation yeah. wetback uh -huh. wow. and so it's the same fucking images it's right people it's in the, their everyday like attire behind chain link in a public kind of space left to sleep on the floor and like be housed in these facilities that are less than humane like animals have better treatment in the freaking like pet hotel or whatever yeah or even the pound just, right yeah, the pound so that image is on the key, and then there's a lot of other elements. But so what am I looking at now? Where? It's a glorious 10-foot rainbow with 
helicopters versus hummingbirds and oak trees and grizzlies, but then there's all these little plot this, points. Wait, but I'm confused. This isn't the one at Barnstone. Yeah, this is oh, still this the one. Oh, this is the one at yeah. There's just a lot in there. <laughs> <laughs> and if you did your homework... I did not, obviously. <laughs> I did not, obviously. You would have seen the picture. God damn it. It's okay. Go. We'll go up. We'll go up together. You can right. take a look. So, but we were saying there was something else than that. Right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's absolutely something else than that. So I've been convening a group of writers since December oh, of last Broken. year. That's going to be on Thursday. Thursday, 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 Thursday 7.30. 7.30, June 6th. Beyond the get this out in time, but I will try it. <laughs> Around Venice Boulevard, right near Pacific. Yeah. yeah. No, well, if you don't know where Beyond Baroque is, and you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. <laughs> True. So I've been working with 10 writers, and I started working with Adolfo Guzman Lopez, um, who's an amazing poet as well as a journalist. And he wrote a few poems for my first two maps of the series. We published uh, various um objects like ephemera like brochures and a catalog and then he's read for some of the events where we've had like panel discussions so we decided to really kind of expand upon this and invite nine other poets scholars to come together once a quarter meet me in the studio quarterly and then we do a writing workshop so i'll co-facilitate with a writer who facilitates the writing part and i'll facilitate the part where we're talking about kind of the objects in this series. We'll also have um, historians and scholars that are working with us illuminate some of the other texts. So over the course of a few sessions, we've generated some poems. So we're doing a reading at Beyond Baroque, and I'm creating a full installation of this series um, as the stage kind of immersive installation. So it'll be a lot in of fun. In the little, in the stage. In the little part. black box theater, yeah. Yeah, I love that theater. That's great. So that's what these crazy fish that I was telling you about. Oh, they're gonna be yeah, floating so she all was telling me about things she's built, <laughs> building uh, that are the wire armature and paper pulp. Paper pulp, like a not a paper mache. It's more complicated. It's like paper mache, but this one's more of a a rigid wrap. So it's like the you didn't material. You fish, though. Oh, these are magical fish that carry the souls of the warriors and dead. So it's a half butterfly, half fish wow. with like these amazing like antenna. Well, exactly like a flying fish, but less long. Less flying. No, they're definitely flying and they're going to be hanging from uh, various elements, but I don't want to say much more because yeah, I want it to be a surprise. Alert, a surprise. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. And so how many people are reading it yet? I believe we have eight out of the ten, because some are from the Bay Area up in San Francisco, and they can't come to each one. We just did uh, a reading at Romans, which was extraordinary. And another, like, you know, so it's whoever's available out of the group. But at the end of year one, we're publishing... um, So which number is this? This is the second one. And this will probably be the the final one for this quarter, because we only meet once a quarter. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got... Yeah, yeah, a million things going on. But we're going to be doing um, programming now through 2021. The group is called Project 1521. So as we come upon the 500-year anniversary of the conquest, we're thinking about 
themes of resistance. Of Mexico. Right. And so really thinking about some of these themes that connect everybody's work and ways in which we engage audiences through mm-hmm. all of our different disciplines. So how did, what, how did the fascination in history come with I mean, I'm, I love history. And I, so, I mean, I just like reading about it and stuff. And I didn't do enough reading before this interview, but <laughs> so for you though, and uh, how does it mix up with your painting and stuff that you got all historical? So I have worked with museum education departments for the past 20 years in what I call the Greater Los Angeles Museum. The past 15 years, or not the past 15 years, from 2003 to 2016, I worked at the Getty Museum, and seven of those years I was the librarian for the museum's kind of education resource center. I love doing art historical kind of inquiry, I love research, I love finding out those lesser known facts that make issues that we're dealing with today relevant. And so having the chance to work full time for myself and my own practice, I've been able to go deep with history of Southern California and the American West as it relates to what the hell we're experiencing today. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's good. Well, I, I have a similar arc that I've mentioned on the podcast before where I, I, I was the part of when I went to USC, part of my work study thing was I was the AV dude. And I had to like, you know, show the slides and stuff at art history class. And so for four years, I was like three, four times a week at each of these classes, and I learned you know, that. And but I loved it. And then I, uh, the other part of that was I worked in the library, and I worked the research desk, and I loved you know helping people. Oh yeah. Yeah. But then I, I, I've told, I've said this before, but it, I would, um, so to be like valuable on the research desk it had to be like the only person who knew where anything was so like when i was in doing the stacks i would hide shit I'd, well i wouldn't hide it i had my own system because otherwise you wouldn't know right so like you know like the little not doing number or whatever yeah. it's like so i knew that it would if it was a three it would be three over from where it was supposed to be huh i know but anyway so we sh- <laughs> so we share so we share a love of history and oh yeah and i'll tell you that out of all of the art books that i've collected over the past 20 some years i've started to deaccession the ones that i don't really give a shit about anymore and just started organizing my books again and going wow. back to my librarian days i was like oh do i do this according to the you know library of congress system or do i like Kind of go by timeline and like Sandy system. <laughs> the Sandy system. Do I invent They're my own? All here under the desk. Yeah. Well, no, I've got like my SoCal. I've got my like yeah. Americas. I've right. got. You or know, these are stuff. all red covers. <laughs> no, you've seen those. You've seen those people that organize yeah. their books by color. Yeah, just that's weird. wrong. Yeah, they just want. I don't know. It's weird. It's like. Well, I mean, I'm all for OCD, but no, that's not helpful. So tell me about, give me a little history lesson on 1521 then. So really, um, as I said, I've been looking really closely and studying this text called the Florentine Codex. It's amazing. It was written one generation after the conquest. 
Um, there's over 2,000 visual narratives. It's written in Nahuatl and in Spanish. So on a single page, you open it up and it's like... And who recorded that? So it was a combination of people. So there were, um, there was the Jesuits. the friar who like started the first ethnographic kind of ethnographic study of what would be all of the customs, beliefs, uh, natural world, and history of Mexico at this moment. So it's mm-hmm. 30 years after the conquest. You have. 22 painters working on it because there's the visual part. Oh my gosh. Then you have know. an entire generation of all the nobles and that are... And where is this now? So it's housed in Florence. Florentine Codex. No, I figured that, but you never know. I know, but it's been touring, so you might have seen it oh. during the PSTLALA mm-hmm. exhibition. No, missed it. So I'm really excited because I've also been tracking down this freaking facsimile of it for about three years, and I finally got a hold of one. And it's being shipped to me. Oh, wow. There's like 200 copies of this thing. Of the facsimile? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of this particular one. There's been three facsimiles. But when you've been studying a text on World Library and like zooming in, doing captures and transcribing shit, like, that gets freaking tiresome. And if you've been doing an in-depth study on Book 11, Book 12, Book 11's The Natural World, which is like, Every plant, every animal, and what we know about them in the colonial period. Yeah, well, okay. Has somebody gone back and, like, now looked at him researching these things and like, well, that's fucking crazy that, like, that wasn't there. There was no three-horned goat. So it's interesting because, for example, in the map that's at Barnstall, there's a whole grouping of hummingbirds that are battling the Calavera copters, which are these skull-faced helicopters. So all those helicopters are based on the UH Sikorsky uh, Customs Border Enforcement actual helicopters. My hummingbirds are based on the actual hummingbirds that are endemic and native to LA and the ones that migrate long distance through LA to go into Mexico. So I start doing that research with observations of the natural world then reference that with what was known in the colonial period in the Florentine. When I look at the Florentine Codex, it says, oh, the hummingbirds, they make, look at this image, and they have two eggs a year, they nest in these trees, and then they go and they pierce their beak into a tree in the winter, die, all the leaves leave the trees, and then when the precious waters come back, the tree starts to get leaves, and then the birds start to get feathers, and they come back to life and they fly away. And so to that I said, holy shit, I didn't know that we had molting hummingbirds, and I don't think I ever want to see a whole group of naked hummingbirds stuck in a tree. (laughs) That might might look like... They were so fascinating until then. Yeah, it was just... (laughs) So that's when I go to like, Cornell's um, ornithology uh, database, and I'm like, okay, so there are some long-distant migrant hummingbirds that molt. That molt. Oh they molt and they hibernate, and it's actually called a torpid state. But so it's interesting to look at what we knew about the natural world in the colonial period versus what we know now, and then kind of make connections between yeah. 
understanding and, and, and what we think we know now because we still don't know everything, you know. Yeah, but so each one of the hummingbirds in that current map are based on all of this kind of back and forth. Yeah. And then also like the connections between like its symbolic kind of representation in art and so art history. So you're only looking at like the stuff like that, like multiple hummingbirds, like you would like uh, like. Uh, so for example, um, in some of the earlier maps of this, I mean, you're not like checking everything in the codex, like. Well, I'm I'm cross referencing a lot of things. So for example, in the second map, which was about the immigration ice raids in early 2018, so I was looking at that. Uh, live feeds, viral videos, people getting snatched off the street. And then I was looking at book 12 of the conquest. And so there's all these like dudes in full armor snatching people, right? And I was like, oh, that looks like today's yeah. border enforcement it with the shield. Yeah. Same shit, different day. So then I like to do like one-to-one and then like kind of pull out certain screenshots and then put them in this larger kind of context but I like to mix and time travel within the images but it's all none of it's made up all of its research to shit because how fun is it to like go through texts and go down these rabbit holes and then to call experts and be like okay but I had a question I know, and they're so happy to take that call. They're like, oh, you want to know that? Wait a minute, I've got five books. Wait, I'll be right back. I'll send you a Dropbox folder. You're like, yes! No, they're so stoked. Whenever you call a researcher, they're like, somebody call. Yeah. They're so happy. Yeah, and then I'm like, I'm not leaving the house. Yeah. (laughs) No, and I've had a blast so far this year. I've had a chance to give talks at a number of universities that have special collections and like, rare books like curators and Mm -hmm. we just go into the collection and start pulling shit out and like looking at stuff he's like oh you wanted more on armadillos hold on (laughs) you know like fucking like going up and down like you wanted to see some of the early botanicals how about the plates and you're like what (laughs) yeah this fascinating stuff so now what so now what so now i'm going to keep making some crazy hybrid animals based on these colonial they're kind of mythological um, creatures and thinking about opportunities to stage my writers in a full immersive installation of this and think about ways to kind of present this content with each iteration of the series right and I think you you have a show at Charles James Oh yeah, we're doing an exhibition January twenty twenty. Well, we'll replay this in December. <laughs> <laughs> Sandy's greatest hits. <laughs> no, I, no, I, no. Charles is great. He's, he's At, been on the show. Oh, awesome. Yeah, there's a a number of exhibitions lined up between now and twenty twenty two, but we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. Your show currently up at Barnstall through July 14th. It's Cola 2019 or Cola 19. I forget which is the hashtag, but it's Cola 2019. Okay. And so that'll be open uh, Thursday through Sunday, 11 to 4. Don't go showing up on a Monday or Tuesday. Thursday. Thursday, June, June 6th, 6th, 8 p.m. 8 p.m. Beyond Baroque. Beyond Baroque. 
Project 1521, and you can find out that about... That sounds really interesting, actually. I really want to go. You sure. should, you should. I will, I will. Um, all of the upcoming exhibitions, lectures, talks, events can be found on studiosandyrodriguez.com. Okay. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure having you. You've been listening to A.G. Geiger Presents, Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. My guest today was artist Sandy Rodriguez. Her work is currently on view at the Municipal Gallery in Barnstall Park, and this Thursday, June 6, she and a group of poets and writers will be reading at Beyond Baroque. For more information, go to studiosandyrodriguez.com. A.G. Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the Mayfair Hotel, music and artist management company Regime 72, and A.G. Geiger Fine Art Books. Check us out at MayfairLA.com, Regime72.com, and of course, A.G. Geiger.com. Thanks for listening.